Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. I want to give a shout-out today to two young ladies that I'm very proud of. One is Candace Clout. Candace took my Texas History class, and after earning her associate's degree at Kilgore College, where else would a Texas history student go? She went to Stephen F. Austin State University, named for the father of Texas, which is located in the oldest town in Texas, in Nacogdoches. While at Stephen F. Austin, she earned a degree in English literature, and she's also studied information and library science at the University of Southern Mississippi. She also did research for the Daily Sentinel magazine celebrating the 300th anniversary of the town of Nacogdoches. She now works at the Nacogdoches Public Library. She also, I do know, is a fan of Edgar Allan Poe, which I am also a fan of. And she told me that she enjoys listening to the podcast while she's at work. And Candice, I'm very proud of you and so glad that you are a Mr. Stroud history class podcasting student. The other is Carly Fountain. Carly took my 1302 history, which is basically what we're teaching now. And she would come in and visit with me before class. And after earning her degree at Kilgore College, associate's degree, she went to University of Texas at Tyler. She is a history major, and she told me that she is going to be taking two courses in the spring. I'm going to tell them to you and see what you think. One, the Civil War, and the other one, Vietnam War. Now, if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, you may have a hint that Mr. Stroud was a Marine in Vietnam. And what did I learn about Vietnam as a Marine over there where you could get killed? The jungles were green, they were thick, it was hot, the rug, the rain was wet. But I did teach the Vietnam War for several years. And so Carly knows that if she needs some help, and I'm not saying I can help her, I will guarantee you that, but I would do this. If she reaches out to me, and this is what young people say, I will reach out to you, I will do what I can to help her. And so those two young people, I'm so proud that you are students in Mr. Stroud's history class, the podcast on Apple iTunes. Now, let's play a game. We all like playing games. We're going to do historical Jeopardy again. So, let's do this. Go up to someone, someone in the crowd, someone you know, maybe at a family gathering, where you could even let a bang on your water glass while you are at a restaurant and get the attention of everyone there and say, I want you to do this. Name a battle, just one battle from the American Civil War. Just one. Now let's play another game. Historical Jeopardy, Final Jeopardy. Another way of doing it. A young writer does not want to work and work and work and write and write and write. He wants to start out with a bestseller. He wants to sell a million copies with his first book. But he doesn't know what to write about. So he decides to call the president of the large printing company, publishing company, Random House. And he gets the president of Random House on the phone, and he says, I don't want to wait around like many of the young writers and just get a trouble trying to get the best. I want a bestseller from the get-go. I want you to tell me what I could write about that would guarantee a million copies being sold what could, oh, the president of Random House said, that's no brainer. Write about Lincoln's dog's veterinarian. What? Well, yeah, see, anything about Lincoln, you're going to sell a million copies, and no one has ever written about Lincoln's dog's veterinarian. Well, I don't want to write about that dog's veterinarian. What about a battle? Oh, that's a no brainer, too. Podcasters. The only battle that I will guarantee you most Americans can name from the Civil War, if they can even name one, and I want to remind you, I based these surveys on my students, 43 years of teaching. If they can name one battle, and they can only name one, which one's it going to be?
which is the battle to get you a million bestsellers? Gettysburg. Gettysburg. The analogy of the rock and the pond and the ripples. This is the biggest rock of them all, podcasters. And I'm going to tell you, there's no way, there's absolutely no way I can chase all these ripples. Remind you, and Candice can help you on this, there are books. And I will tell you from time to time about books. I will have you go to Amazon.com and listen to a little bit of some of these books. And I will guarantee you the books I recommend, I believe, are just tremendously, they're good narrative, they're good history people, they're great books. There are more books on the Battle of Gettysburg than on any other battle in American history. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just tell you kind of what I told in class, a little overview of the Battle of Gettysburg. To begin with, why Gettysburg? Well, sticking with the main armies of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac, the ones we've been mainly talking about, Lee had decided to move north again. Again, remember, he moved north into Maryland, and he ended up in the small town of Sharpsburg for the Battle of Antietam. He was on his way to Pennsylvania then, and in the summer of 1863, he also wants to go back into Pennsylvania for all the reasons that I mentioned before, relieve the farmers, hopefully win a dramatic battle in the north and force the north to, re- to surrender. But now there's another reason. Now, it's not England. England's not coming into this war. Remember the card that Mr. Lincoln played when I told you it was Uncle Sam and he's playing poker with John Bull of England and that card was Emancipation Proclamation? No, no, no. There's no telegrams, podcasters. No, if Lee wins, there's none of that anymore. That is gone with the wind. But there's another threat, and that is unconditional surrender. Grant has now shown up at Vicksburg, Mississippi. And so one of the reasons Lee wants to move north is try to draw federal soldiers from Grant's army up to Washington to protect them from Lee's army. He's moving north. Now, I told you last time, I'm going to tell you again. And you put this, and you just handle this any way you want to, that you think best. Joseph E. Johnston, who never got on the right side of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, never told Davis what he was doing. Davis never knew what, da- what Johnston was doing. Lee kept Davis well informed. But many times he well informed him after he'd already done what he was going to do. You know, better to ask forgiveness than permission. So I let you decide which way to go with that. And so he's going to send word to Mr. Davis that he's going into Pennsylvania and give the reasons. But it's after he already started. And just one more time, he wants to try to relieve the soldiers who are besieging the Confederates at Vicksburg. He wants to get on northern soil. He wants to win a great battle. He wants to relieve the farmers of Virginia. He wants to do all of that. Here we go. Jeb Stewart, James Ewell Brown Stewart, the most famous cavalryman of the Confederacy. Here we go. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop saying here we go, but when I say the most famous, what about Nathan Bedford Forrest? What about fighting Joe Wheeler? What about Mosby, the Gray Ghost? Okay, one of the most famous, James Ewell Brown Stewart. Podcasters, there's so many things. Jeb Stewart decided that he would leave the Army of Northern Virginia. Now, he got permission, but it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, use your own judgment if practicable. I've read three biographies on Lee. He always gave orders if practicable, if practicable. Oh, if practicable. In other words, use your own judgment. 
Use your judgment. You're there, I'm not. Now, this is what Stuart's going to do. He takes his cavalry, and he's going to ride around the Army of the Potomac. That's 110,000 men, podcasters. 110,000 men. And this army has gotten a brand new commander. Fighting Joe Hooker has been relieved. Lincoln is having great difficulty finding a commander that can take on Robert Edward Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia. And so he elevates one to command of the army by the name of George Gordon Meade, who's been in command for about one week. Now, this friend of mine I had years ago, we used to sit around, and could a junior officer elevate up to the command of an army? How well would they do? Not all of them do well. Some of them do better staying where they are. But I will guarantee you this, George Gordon Meade would do well. And what Jeb Stewart is going to do is ride around that army. Now, podcasters, this brings him glory. He lost the battle. He wants to get his glory back. He rides around. He's going to steal some supply wagons. He's going to do all of that. But you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to be telling Lee where the Federal Army is. He's not going to be telling Lee where the grounds are that needed to be fought. He's not informing Lee. Now, the Confederate cavalry was good. But you know what? The Union cavalry is pretty good, too. There has been entirely too much romanticism with the cavalry. How can you say too much? Maybe that's not the right word, so I'll let you decide. Let me tell you something about the cavalry. What they did in that war, they were the reconnaissance. They were not armed like infantry. They would find the enemy. They would keep the commander informed. It was considered suicide for cavalry to attack infantry. You want to hear a couple of jokes? Sure you do. These are jokes from the Civil War podcasters. Contemporary jokes. Two of them. I don't know if I'm going to hear you laugh, but I know you're going to start giggling on these. One soldier, an infantryman, asked another infantryman, Have you ever seen a dead cavalryman? Oh, podcasters. I'm going to tell you again. In the military, 10% of the fighting force is infantry, and they take 90% of the casualties. Have you ever seen a dead cavalryman? Here's another one. I know there's going to be a battle because the cavalry is going to the rear. You know what? Jeb Stewart was not giving Lee the information that Lee needed, and so he's moving north, as he said, like a blind man in the dark. Where is Stewart? Has anyone seen my cavalry? Now, there's big debate. Did Stuart have permission to do this? Did he not have permission to do this? Could he have done it? Should he have done it? Should he, should he, should he, should he, should he? I'm going to tell you what Gary Gallagher, University of Virginia professor of Civil War history said. It does not matter. He was not where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to do. So Lee is moving north without any information and when he is near the town of Gettysburg, which population was about 2,000, one thing that the infantry needed was shoes. The shoes wore out. Marching that distance, they wore out, and Lee's army needed shoes. And he heard there was a shoe manufacturer in the town of Gettysburg, so he's going to send some Confederates in to get the shoes. Now, one thing you don't do is you don't steal these shoes from the northerners. You give them a voucher, and so you take all of their shoes, and you give them a voucher as a Confederate state's IOU, a whole bunch of Confederate money. I always like to throw these little tidbits in, and again, based on my college students, they were quite surprised to learn, since I mentioned shoes, 
that in the Civil War, you did not have a left shoe and a right shoe. You had two shoes. Now, you don't believe me. You look at Civil War pictures, and you look down, and you see those boots. They're identical. So you just put them on the same foot, and after a while, they kind of form to the left and the right. And we can thank the ladies that when the ladies' dresses got short enough that you could actually see their feet, we started getting left and right shoes. And so on July the 1st, 1863, Confederate division starts moving into the little town of Gettysburg to get some shoes. One more thing before I forget. I don't want to forget this. I've asked it before. I'm going to ask it again and again and again. Which is more important? What is true or what people believe is true? Are you ready, podcasters? There were no shoes in Gettysburg, except what the people were wearing. The Confederates had heard there was a shoe manufacturer there. It was not true, but they believed it was. So they're going into Gettysburg. The Union Cavalry was doing what it was supposed to do. Under command was a gentleman by the name of Buford. They were ahead of Meade's army. They'd gone through the town of Gettysburg, and they see Confederate soldiers coming down the road. And so what Buford does is has his men dismount, and they open fire. They can't defeat them, but they can slow them down. And he sends runners on horses, of course, to Meade and tells me, you get up here quick. There is high ground here, and you better get on that high ground because if you don't, they will. And so what he's going to do, he's going to try to slow them down enough to give me time to get up on the hills near Gettysburg. While they are fighting, the Confederates are coming in, pushing them back. General Reynolds and his corps of Union soldiers show up. And in the thick of the fighting, Reynolds is killed. Now this is important to me, and so you're going to have to bear with me. As I told you, the first book I did was on swords. I am fascinated with them. And what General Reynolds never knew is that men in his command had chipped in and had bought him a beautiful presentation sword. It was in a mahogany case in a wagon to be presented to him, but he was killed. The first day of fighting, the Confederates pushed the Federal Cavalry back through the town of Gettysburg, and then Meade shows up, and they get in the famous fishhook position. So on the first day, July the 1st, they move through the town. Now, as long as there are people interested in the Civil War, they're going to be interested in Gettysburg. And as long as people are interested in Gettysburg, there are going to be several questions that are going to be asked over and over and over again. And one of them is this. Why did Lee fight at Gettysburg? Why did he not just keep moving and choose his own ground and make the federal army attack him? Well, I'm going to tell you the reason for that. To begin with, he believed that Providence controlled everything and that the reason they had come into Gettysburg is because this is where he should fight this battle. It wasn't accidental. Also, as he told one of his officers, this is where they are, and this is where we're going to fight. And so, they're going to fight at the town in Gettysburg. There's also going to be another question over and over and over. After Stonewall Jackson's death, Richard Ewell takes command of his brigade, his corps. And as they're coming in, he is moving to the right of the Union Army, He's going to attack them on a hill up there. Lee gave him the discretion orders, if practicable, take that hill. Well, he did not think it was practicable. Old Baldy said that it was too strong and didn't do it. Every lecture I've ever listened to on the Battle of Gettysburg, I'm not going to say every book, but many of the books, what if Stonewall Jackson had been there? Would Stonewall Jackson have taken that hill? And Gary Gallagher, the University of Virginia Civil War professor, said, 
Jackson was dead, get over it. He was not there, it was not taken. So the first day of fighting at Gettysburg, the Federal Army has moved up to the Fishhook position. The second day at Gettysburg, two things are going to happen. One is, a general by the name of Dan Sickles is going to move his corps out into the Peach Orchard. Now, when he did this, I don't know how I can tell you to do this, but you put your, you put your fingers together, and all of a sudden, you move your fingers left to the right, and there's going to be a gap there. That gap is going to be there because that's where Sickles was, and Sickles moved out. Now, he said he moved out because he thought it was better ground out there to withstand the, the Confederates and all that. But I'm going to tell you what I read years ago because I like this. These other generals saw Sickles moving his corps out there, and one said to the other, where is Sickles going? And the other one said, I don't know, but he'll be back in a minute. And podcasters, he was. Those Confederates hit him on the front and on the right. On the left, they hit him in every way you could hit. There are many that think that Sickles should have been court-martialed for that. And what saved him? He got wounded. While they carried him into the rear, he had a bottle of whiskey he was drinking. They amputated his leg. And he has his bone made into a walking cane. You either court-martialed him or you give him the Medal of Honor. He got the Medal of Honor. And as a biographer of Dan Sickles said, tons of ink will be spilled onto gallons on paper trying to justify Sickles' move or justify a court-martial for that move. One other thing about Dan Sickles. Just before the Civil War, he committed a murder. His wife had found a lover who was the son of Francis Scott Keyes who wrote what became the national anthem. Sickles' lawyer was Edward Statton, who is now the Secretary of War. It is the first time that someone was found not guilty due to temporary insanity. Dan Sickles, the gap, the fighting, but also on the second day, over on the Union left, there's the 20th Maine, under command of the person who was featured in the movie Gods and Generals. And this is a man by the name of Chamberlain. Chamberlain and his men had already been in quite a bit of action. He has about a thousand men in his regiment when he started. He's down to about 300 maybe. Now one of the things about all of these units, brigades, corps, all of that, I want to remind you about the first Texas at the Battle of Antietam. He had 1,000 men in 1861, September of 1862. That regiment was down to 240 men. When they came out of the cornfield, there was about 80 of them left. Every unit fighting at Gettysburg is like that. And so divisions and corps and all of that, you can find out how many they had, but they don't have near as many as they did when they got started. And so the 20th Maine is down to about 300 men from 1,000. They had just gotten there. The Union left was not protected. They got the 20th Maine there along with the rest of the brigade. And Chamberlain is on the extreme left. And he's given orders. He's told, you're on the left, and they're going to hit you, and they're going to hit you hard, but under no circumstances can you be pushed off this ground. Do you understand that? You get pushed off this ground, we lose this battle. And then Chamberlain said, who's on my left? And the answer was, you are the left. You are the left. And here they come. Confederates, Hood's Texas Brigade, and others. 
coming to attack him with that round top. The Confederates have the Federals outnumbered about five to one. The Federals hear the rebel yell, and here they come. Podcasters, it's going to be ferocious fighting. All of this is ferocious fighting. They finally push the Confederates back. The Confederates, the rebel yells, they're getting ready to come back. And the sergeant tells Chamberlain, sir, we have no more ammunition. They are out of ammunition. And so with the Confederates coming up the hill to attack them, you cannot be pushed off this hill under any circumstance. I would ask my students, what order do you give? And some of them said, retreat. No. Chamberlain gave this order. Fix bayonets. Fix bayonets. That's putting the long blade on the end of your rifle. And then he said, charge. Outnumbered, the 20th man came charging down that hill and hit those Confederates so hard it stopped them in their tracks. There is a Confederate major there, and he has his pistol pointed right at Chamberlain, and Chamberlain has the tip of his sword right at that major's throat. Now this is when we see he's going to blink. And the Confederate major turned his his coat revolver over and handed it to Chamberlain. Chamberlain will receive the Medal of Honor for this. It won't be for many years after the war. Podcaster, you know I'm into these things. And I found, I called up the main, I finally found a museum, and I've seen on internet pictures of Chamberlain's Revolver that he captured there and his sword. He held the left. Now, it's the evening of July the 2nd. And guess who shows up? Jeb Stewart shows up. He goes to Lee and he says, Sir, I brought you 80 wagons. And what he meant was, aren't you proud of me? My podcasters. If you find that there were 100 wagons, don't hold it against me. Lee did not yell. But he looked at Stuart and he said, What good are they going to do me now? Now, podcasters, I'm going to tell you right now, you could not have said anything worse to Jeb Stuart than what Lee just said. Because what he meant was, Where were you when I needed you? He saw that Stuart had been hurt. He said, come on, it'll be all right. Now, podcaster, what I'm going to tell you is this. If you listen to every one of those animated maps and all, you're going to to learn about this. This was not in the movie. And there's a book about what I'm going to tell you called Lee's Secret Plan to Win at Gettysburg. And the reason it's secret And I wonder why, because I've known about this little secret plan for as long as I can remember. And I found out it's because he didn't include it in his after-action report for some reason. My podcaster, there are several questions that will always be asked about Gettysburg. Why did he fight there? What if Ewell had taken the Union right on that hill? What if he had done that? And this one, why did he do the famous charge on the 3rd of July that was nothing but suicide? And I'm going to tell you something, everyone that I've heard say that does not know what I'm going to tell you right now. Okay? You ready? He told Stuart, I want you to take your cavalry and ride around the Union Army. And I'm going to attack their front at about 3 p.m. tomorrow. And I want you to attack the rear. I want you to hit them in the back when I hit them in the front. Right at the very same place. And we're going to crush them. Can you do that? And so off Stuart goes. I'm going to tell you again, podcasters. Very few people know what I just told you. The next day there's some fighting. It's July 3rd. But July 3rd is the most famous charge 
in American history, and that is Pickett's Charge. Now, one thing I've always wondered, why was it called Pickett's Charge? Pickett was not in charge. He commanded a division. And I found out by reading, notice the I-N-G, reading. I finally found out why, and I'm going to tell you. Up until, I'm going to have to come up with a date, up until the 1880s, let's say, it was never known as Pickett's Charge. It was known as Longstreet's Charge. Longstreet's Charge. Longstreet didn't go with him, but he was the commander. And listen to this. The reason it was changed to Pickett's Charge is because the Lost Cause writers wanted to make Gettysburg the most famous battle, this charge the most famous charge, Lee the greatest general. But since this was going to be the greatest battle of the Confederacy, they don't like Longstreet anymore. After the war, Longstreet became a Republican, and I've read a biography on him, podcasters. He's Republican in name only. If you can't beat him, you join him. And you try to work on the inside, but he couldn't tell them that. So to the Confederates, to those who survived the war, he was a scallywag. That was the worst you could be. And so they wanted to remove his name. They're also going to blame him for the loss of the Battle of Gettysburg. So they decided to do the Virginian. Virginians to them were the greatest. And that Virginian was Pickett. And so about 3 p.m., Confederate artillery has opened up, trying to soften up the Union lines. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, podcasters, I'm going to tell you again, they don't mention what I'm going to tell you on the animated maps. I've been reading about this war since I was in, what, the fifth grade, sixth grade? I did a term paper on the Civil War in the eighth grade. I've done a lot of reading. I cannot tell you exactly where I read some of the things that I mentioned. But the Confederate artillery lined up. There were about 80 cannons. It's the largest cannonade in the history of America on this continent. But I'm going to tell you something. Confederate artillerymen had a, a tendency to shoot a little bit too high and overshoot their target. Also, the Confederate powder was not as good. And so these 80 artillery pieces opened fire on what looks to be the Union lines. But they're hitting a little bit behind the Union army. They're shooting a little bit too far. But from where the Confederates are, even with a telescope, it looks like you're hitting them. And a Union officer, I don't know who it was, been years since I read this, he knew what they were trying to do. So he told the artillerymen, very slowly, stop firing. Stop firing. And they will think they've knocked your artillery out. And so, slowly, the Union artillery stopped firing back. The Confederates think they're knocking them out. And when all the Union artillery had stopped, the artillery commander turned to Lee and said, Sir, they have no more artillery. And then 12,000 Confederates come out of the woods and they line up for the most famous charge in America. For whatever reason, Lee ordered no rebel yells. They got in formation and they start moving across an open field for one mile. I've been to every one of these battlefields. Over the years, I didn't do it at one time. And I've been behind the rock wall where the Union Army is, and you can look out for one mile, and off in the woods there, you can see where the Confederates are coming from. And you talk about a target of opportunity that is unbelievable. And then you can walk, but I decided to drive, drive around and go to the position where the Confederates were. They started coming, and you look at that wall a mile away. Podcasters, how long does it take you to walk a mile with people trying to kill you every step of the way? 
They lined up. They had the battle flags. One of the first books I listened to, all podcasters, this was back in the 1980s, was a book written by a survivor of the Battle of Gettysburg, a Union officer. And he described what I'm getting ready to tell you. He'd never seen anything like that. Never 12,000 men lined up as if on a parade. And then they just start slowly toward you. He said he'd never seen anything like that. It was beautiful. But podcasters, this is war. And those cannons opened up. And they could fire a mile. And those cannonballs start coming in and they start exploding. And people's arms and legs and heads start flying off. And you keep going. And then when you got 500 yards away, thousands of 58 caliber rifles opened fire on you. And you kept going. And we got close. The cannon switched to canister. And that's like taking a giant shotgun and blasting you with it. And you just clear everything out in front of you. And still, they kept coming. Now, when they hit the center of that Union line, a Confederate officer by the name of Armstead, he took the cap that he was wearing and put it on the tip of his sword and he held it up. Armstead, I'm sorry, Armstead, Lieutenant Lewis Armstead, General Armstead. On my Facebook, and you can find this, this is a picture that has been drawn. It was at Harper's Weekly. Forciento, the famous Civil War artist, has done several of them. I think it is the most famous drawing and picture of the Civil War that you can find. He put that hat on that sword and he yelled for his men, give them the cold steel that energized them. He he moves a few more feet and he's shot. And he falls down next to this artillery piece. That is as far as the Confederates are going to get. He's taken to the rear. He died a couple of days later. The sword was picked up by an officer. Excuse me, not an officer. He was an enlisted man. A sergeant by the name of Speck. I don't know where he put it. But when he was commissioned a lieutenant, he had to have a sword. So he wore that one. All right, podcasters. If you want to, that sword is in my book, Inscribed Union Swords, one chapter are Union Swords in Confederate Hands. It's an 1850 put officer sword that was worn, and then, I believe it was 1906, there was a reunion of the veterans that fought at Gettysburg, Union and Confederate, and that officer took that sword back and gave it to the survivors of Pickett's division. Pickett's charge, as it is called now, failed. All right, I'm going to tell you something, podcasters, and I want you to do this. I want you to pinky swear. Now, pinky swear is you hold your hand up, left or right, I don't care, or you could hold both of them up and make a fist. And then that little bitty finger, stick it straight up. That's your pinky. Because you're going to pinky swear when I tell you what the pinky swear to, I want you to zip your lips shut. And don't you ever tell anyone what I'm going to tell you right now. You understand? It will not leave this podcast. Do you understand? I want you to pinky swear. And then I want you to zip those lips. And you never repeat what I'm going to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you where I found this. I found it on a book. On a book. In a book. And the name of the book was Pickett's Charge. It was not a small book. I mean, it, we went into every regiment. We went into every... All right, I'm going to tell you one more. I want you to pinky swear and zip those lips after I tell you this. And don't you ever, 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 ever... Don't you ever repeat what I'm going to tell you. Discretion is the better part of valor? Pickett, whose name is this charge... When he saw what was happening to those men, he got behind a barn with a bottle of whiskey 
That's where he stayed. I'm going to tell you something. I hate to do this. There were some other Confederate soldiers. It was suicide. They didn't quite go all the way. My friend, oh, I keep telling you about my friend. He said, you know, those Confederates were so brave that when, when they were stopped at the center wall on that Pickett's charge and they were retreating, they did not turn around. They walked backwards. I'm going to tell you something. In the very first podcast, Mr. Stroud's History Class Introduction, I told you that there's these things called BS. And you know what BS is, Bachelor of Science degree. I'll guarantee you, those Confederates turned and they ran, people. They ran. I would love to tell you that the Union soldiers stood up and cheered them for their bravery, but they didn't. I want you to remember Fredericksburg where the Union Army went up in a suicidal charge and they got slaughtered. And many of those men who had fought at Fredericksburg are behind that wall. And as the Confederates were retreating, they didn't have the term payback, but they would fire at those Confederates and they would yell, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. Lee could not believe what had happened to his men. Only half come back. That's 6,000 that don't come back. 6,000. Where was Jeb Stewart? Well, as Jeb Stewart was riding around the Union Army to come and attack him at the inter- in the center behind him, he ran into an officer. An officer by the name of George Armstrong Custer. Have you ever heard that name? You associate him with a battle, the Little Bighorn, where he was killed. The only reason you even know that, if you know that, is because he was so famous. When I do the Indian Wars, I will mention there was another officer wiped out before Custer that you never heard of because he wasn't famous. You heard of the Little Bighorn and Custer being killed there because he was famous. That man was a fighter. I read a biography on him, and I'm going to, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was a Marine Corps Vietnam veteran. He wrote a tremendous book about Custer in the Civil War called This Glorious War. That's a term from Custer. I learned so much about Custer, and most of what I thought I knew about him was wrong. He was almost a Confederate. Three of his four roommates at the military academy became Confederate generals. But that man was a fighter. And outnumbered by Stuart's cavalry, what word did Custer know? Charge. And he charged into him, and he stopped them dead in their tracks. And that's why Stuart was not where he was supposed to be when Pickett's men were at the front. Battle of Gettysburg was over, podcasters. And this country had never seen anything like that. They had never seen anything like that. I'm going to just give an estimate of the casualties. That's all I'm going to do is give you an estimate of the casualties. And that's going to be about 50,000 dead, wounded, missing. Ever been to the, the Vietnam Memorial Wall? You think about every one of those names lying there on that field. About 50,000. Was it the turning point of the war? I'll let you debate that. Lee never took the offensive again. So many things, podcasters. I believe he lost like 17 generals. Generals in those days were at the front. Unless you were Robert E. Lee, you were at the front. And you lose their abilities to command. So you have to poke people that you don't know are going to be able to do a good job. Lee starts retreating. There are thousands and thousands of wounded. Now I'm going to tell you. Lincoln is upset because Meade does not go after Lee. He could have destroyed him. But what Lincoln did not know, and he will learn, and he 
kind of apologized. He did. He said these Union soldiers were completely exhausted. Lee retreats. The Battle of Gettysburg is over. If you watch the movie, and it's a good movie, but I'm going to tell you one thing. It is a novel. Now, I'm going to tell you this, podcasters, that when you start watching that movie, if you do, these Confederate generals are going to be walk, are going to be sitting around a campfire, and one of them is going to say, we should have freed the slaves then started the war, and I'd like to choke on my popcorn. We should have freed the slaves. I want to remind you, you can watch that movie. It's a good movie, but remember, it is a novel. It's a novel. It's a historical novel. Now, we were in class. I would show you this book by Fracento Gettysburg. I mentioned it about the Antietam photographs. And I would show one. If you can find that book somewhere, I believe it's on page. I got that book right here. Bear with me. Gettysburg, A Journey in Time. And I'm going to tell you, you may not think these books are interesting, but they are very interesting. And what? Well, let me tell you. Oh, there. I found it, podcast. I'm so sorry it took. Okay. If you find Candace, you got it in your library, I hope. William A. Frasento. F-R-A-S-S-A-N-I-T-O. Gettysburg, A Journey in Time. And you open that thing to page 220. And you know what you're going to see, podcasters? You're going to see three dead Confederate soldiers in a shallow grave that looks like no more than one foot deep. One foot deep. You know, we all learn. And when you look at this photograph, if you can find it, page 220, Gettysburg, Journey in Time, there are three boards at the head of these dead Confederate soldiers. These are not like tombstones. They're just boards. And I wondered, what in the world? Well, then I read the caption. I don't know why this was important. I don't know why they wanted to know. But that indicated that this grave was dug by Confederate prisoners. Another thing, reenactors, you try to get things authentic. I know you do. You do a very good job. But also in this book is a photograph of three Confederate soldiers that are prisoners. That's on page 70. If you want to see what Confederate soldiers look like, the real ones, halfway through that war, You look at these three men, and you will not believe what you're looking at. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to advertise, and we give a shout-out to these books. I was reading it many years ago, and I told another teacher about it. Oh, they said, that's a terrible book. Why would anybody do a book like that? I said, you want to borrow it? Yeah, let me look at it. He came back a few days later and said, that's one of the most interesting books I've ever read, because what Presento does... He doesn't just show you dead soldiers. He corrects the misinformation, and he goes into detail about where these people are, what units they were. So if you have a chance, you get this one, you get the one on Antietam, and you start reading that, and I bet you you're going to find it's much more interesting than you thought. And what I'm mentioning dead soldiers, which I know is a really good topic There's so much misinformation about all this. How many times have you heard in the Second World War they made sure that the home front never saw dead American soldiers? These dead American soldiers are not pleasant to look at. Now, this is what I'm getting at. Number one in World War II, Carly, they did show dead American soldiers. I believe the first ones were dead Marines floating in the water off the little island of Tarawa. Now, this is what I'm getting at. And you saw them in the Civil War. And I will tell you, if you look at those in the Civil War, 
There is nothing glorious about that. But it didn't stop them. It didn't stop Americans from fighting. And the reason is, it's my opinion, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't give my opinion unless I know I am right. If you don't think that people die in a war, then I don't know what you can think about. It wasn't that people were dying. It wasn't that Americans were dying and they were dying in large numbers. Are you ready, podcasters? It's why are they dying? What are we fighting for? What's the purpose? That's it. You don't like people dying. But what's the purpose? And the Union said, we got a purpose. World War II, I never, ever heard that anyone in World War II said, we've lost so many, we've got to stop. No. You look at these books if you get them. Now, this is just the beginning. And one of the reasons I want to tell you about the Confederate soldiers in that little shallow grave is that's going to lead to the very next class. Because they did not bury these soldiers properly. And it's not going to be very long that the armies are gone. And little Mary's got to go to school. You got to step over that skull, step around those arms over there. All podcasters, if we were in class, I could go into more detail. I'm not going to do it. Let's just do it like this. A lot of the dead that were buried there in those shallow graves are not buried there anymore, and they're all over the place. Someone's got to clean this mess up. They got to clean this mess up. And that's what the next class is going to be. The cleaning up of that mess. I will see you next time, podcasters. Have a great one.